And welcome into another edition of the Doug Russell Podcast. Glad to have you along. Of course, uh, football season is just about upon us. The Wisconsin Badgers, they'll have their season opener coming up on Saturday at Camp Randall Stadium against Penn State. We'll have a preview of that coming up on Friday. Uh, we want to talk some Packers football uh, as they make... Now, there's a misnomer. It's not their final cuts. It's their final cuts of training camp. But as we all know... There's tweaks to the roster of every NFL team just about every week. So the initial 53-man roster was made uh, during the mandatory cutdown for the NFL on Tuesday at 3 o'clock. And afterwards, I had a chance to catch up with longtime WNFL radio reporter in Green Bay, Mark Daniels, to get his takes on the initial 53-man roster. The most obvious question that I have for you as someone who saw these guys in camp as often as you did, were there any players that got cut today that you were surprised by? Well, the Scott thing, perhaps, uh, is is the biggest name on that, uh, just because I wasn't expecting him to go out and, and make a deal for a punter, but uh, you know, this kid, Corey Bjork, has, uh, has got a leg. He's a left footer, uh, and he's been with Buffalo, had some good numbers last year. Bills moved on from him. He signed with the Rams and was thumping in the preseason but couldn't push out Johnny Hecker. And uh, I think the Packers, after three years of watching J.K. Scott hang one up for 60, uh, only to have you know him outkick coverage units with terrible returns coming back at him and feeble tackle attempts, uh, he'd hit a 21-yarder like he did against the Jets. And that just three years of that, uh, and if you just can't find a consistent way to get the ball down the field, uh, you're in trouble. And so uh, that kind of threw me for a loop. But, you know, looking at the production over the last three years, no, he's an excellent holder. I will give you that. And there's still some concern there because they've got an erratic snapper in Hunter Bradley. So I wouldn't be surprised if, Mason Crosby has a whole new operation before all is said and done. A couple of snappers were cut around the league today, too. So, uh, But Green Bay will give up a sixth rounder in 23 to the Rams, uh, and they'll get the new punter and a seventh rounder in 2023 as part of the deal. Uh, Scott was one of four Packer draft choices released today. Uh, another one from the class of 18, Equinemius St. Brown, just could not get past injuries. It was one thing after another with this guy. He had shown just glimpses of some potential as another big, tall kind of MBS guy with not quite that speed, but it never materialized for him. And so out he goes. I thought Dexter Williams had a really good camp. The sixth-round pick from 2019, he had uh, a lot of good rushing numbers late in preseason games against the threes and fours of everyone else, but I thought there was still a chance they might keep four uh, just because I think he started, even as coach Ben Sermon said, he looked like he's starting to turn the corner, but he turned the corner and that's when the bus hit him today. So, and the only other draft choice release was the uh, feel good story. Uh, Cole Van Lannan, the kid from green Bay, Bayport high school, the Badger uh, cut loose. He was a six rounder. Uh, he's, he's a work in progress. And I, and I, and I really hope he clears waivers. So he's back here tomorrow on the practice squad. But other than that, nothing really surprised me on that cut list whatsoever. Uh, the Packers also cutting Reggie Begleton, the wide receiver. I was talking yeah. with eh, not, not impressed. 
you know, uh, he was okay. He's all right. Uh, Jawan Winfrey was all right early in camp until he got hurt. But I just don't think the Packers are going to go beyond what they wound up with. And, and, and they kept just the six. And Malik Taylor clearly was the best of everyone else behind the five that everyone knew was going to be on the roster as soon as Randall Cobb was brought on board uh, to appease the quarterback. So, uh, you know, Begleton's a nice receiver. I think he can play in the NFL, but certainly he's not, you know, a one, two, or three in my opinion. There was no way outside of catastrophic injury that Kurt Benkert was going to, to make this team, was he? No, they have, they, they need they need bodies for special teams. Uh, they've got outside linebackers that can run, a couple of safeties that can run, uh, you know, and they got some new guys in the in the secondary, you know, two of them in, in Isaac Yadam uh, and, uh, you know, Shamar John Charles, not to mention Eric Stokes, uh, you know, and that's where they need the help. Uh, they don't need a third quarterback. I like Kurt Benkert. I think he's got some game. He's got some savviness to him. He's kind of a fun kid. Uh, you know, I, if he clears waivers, he's back uh, because I think the Packers can see some developmental potential in him. Uh, they also had a couple of cornerbacks that they uh, dismissed today as well. Stephen Denmark, new to the team. Uh, KB on Ento, Rogesterman Ferris. Any surprises uh, in the defensive secondary yeah, with some Ento of the releases? Ento a little bit, yeah. Uh, Ento a little bit. I mean, uh, he, he played a little last year. I thought he had a decent camp. Uh, he did have the pick in the preseason game. Uh, but, yeah, that one a little bit uh, surprising, especially with Yannam coming in in the Josh Jackson trade, who, by the way, did make the Giants a 53. So that was, a you know, a swap for swap of uh, disappointing pretty high <laughs> draft choices of a couple right. of years ago. And the Packers hope they got the better end of that deal. And I think they, they were impressed enough with Yannam uh, to make Ento expendable. I think that was a tough cut uh, for the Packers, for sure. I've been reading. Denmark was only here for a couple of days. I don't sure. think he had much of a chance. Uh, Christian Upoff, safety. Uh, I had seen some things about him that he was having a good camp, and he was released today as well. Any surprise there? Uh, no, just numbers. Uh, you know, they're just uh, four's enough. Uh, I thought possibly five because uh, he, is a, he, he did make a really good special teams play uh, in that Jets game, late in that game. Uh, but, uh, you know, in, in the coverage aspect, you know, I don't think there's any question Vernon Scott and Henry Black were ahead of him. And so uh, just no room. J.J. Uh, Molson, the, the kicker, he survived a couple of cuts. Clearly the team kind of likes him. There was never, unless Mason Crosby completely disintegrated, Mason Crosby was, was taking that job. But it's pretty clear that at least the Packers were kicking the tires on this Molson kid. Yeah, I, you know, you know, he was here last year as the COVID just in case kind of kicker. Uh, you know, basically came down with a positive test. You know, they're screwed. So you know, he hung around uh, for a season plus. And quite honestly, you know, Mason's you know well into his thirties now, and I think Molson helped kind of just save a few swings of the leg. Although Mason probably would tell you he needs a couple more swings after what happened in Buffalo. But, uh, yeah, I think that was part of it, too. Uh, yeah, and J.J. will stay on the ready list if something ever happens to Crosby. But I don't think Mason is uh, showing any real decline. He had that horrendous year, but that's now four or five years behind him. He's been about as reliable as they come. Well, speaking of swings of the leg for Mason Crosby, was J.K. Scott's, I guess, the nail, in, maybe the final nail in the coffin when Mason Crosby lined up to punt against the Bills? And they just wanted to see what he could have and maybe to see if J.K. Scott was expendable? 
No, I think that was just kind of a in the game thing uh, where uh, I'm sure JK said something to Maurice Drayton and to Mason, who's never punted in an NFL game. What the hell? Give it a shot. Let's have a little fun with it. And I think that's kind of how that went. Uh, and Mason got that out of his system, hopefully. Uh, but he could talk enough about, uh, you know, over four hang time. Uh, 34 net, 41 gross. It wasn't I mean, bad. Num- numbers, numbers rivaling J.K. Scott, uh, unfortunately, because uh, J.K. is just uh, again not not good. Uh, just couldn't consistently give you what the Packers really want. Well, that's the thing with punting in, in a field position game. Yeah, it's it's consistency, and when you've got someone who can. Uh, you know, kick the ball 75 yards in the air on one punt and then go shank a potamus the next time, you know, that's that's not what is, is going to keep you employed in the NFL. And look, it was one punt, but I thought Mason Crosby did okay. I thought, you know, he punted that one, and I'm like, I know what the coaches are going to say after the game. I know what everybody, everybody's going everybody's gonna to downplay this after the game, but I know that they weren't very happy with J.K. Scott last year, so I just I was wondering uh, in, in in my own mind. All right, so that goes over the cuts as we're joined by WNFL Radio's Mark Daniels uh, here on the game night. Uh, You saw Jordan Love throughout camp. Obviously, we all saw him in two of the three preseason games. I think he was the biggest storyline because of what happened with Aaron during the offseason. What is your takeaway from what you were able to see in person from Jordan Love, the second-year quarterback? Yeah, the summer of love, 2021. <laughs> I mean, there's no question about it. Uh, you know, and I think the guy's got NFL ability. Uh, you know, I just never got a chance to see it at all last year. Uh, rarely uh, got to practices during the pandemic of 2020. Uh, and if we did see it, he's just running scout stuff at best. And so finally got to watch him, and I watched him a lot. He was under scrutiny from the OTAs to the mini camp through the summer and in the preseason games. And he has progressed. He's shown me a few things. He's got movement skills. Uh, He's just, he needs snaps, Uh, you know, and he needs another 300 snaps uh, before he's going to really start feeling comfortable processing the speed of the game and the speed at which you need to make decisions. Not to mention, eliminating the impossible decisions which were on display uh in buffalo uh you know just those kinds of plays teaching moments yes let's hope we are, they aren't repeated but no day to day practice to practice yeah there were ups there were downs but i'm not discouraged uh you know with jordan love at all i'm, I'm encouraged that i think he's on a proper path but it is a <clears throat> but it is a long path uh, and I'm not sure if, you know, the change is coming in 2022, if he's going to be ready, but ready or not, it might have to happen then. If everyone else from the Jaguars to the Jets to everyone else that's throwing out these rookie quarterbacks right away this year are going to sink or sink with them, you know, we'll see. But I no, I thought Love got better. Uh, he looks he looks like a quarterback to me that could play in the NFL. Can he win in the NFL? Not right now. Uh, but I think he's got a chance. Well, yeah, that's the question, because the preseason is now over, and he spent the entire offseason, with the exception of training camp-specific practices, he was the, you know, he was QB1, because Aaron was 
having yeah. his his holdout, and he got all of the snaps. And then in the preseason, he was able to play competitive football for the first time since you know he was at Utah State in 2019. I wonder, and again, we're talking about catastrophic injury, and you hope that it doesn't happen because I don't think that this Packers team is that far away from going to a Super Bowl. Certainly the last two years they weren't that far away from going back to the Super Bowl. But I don't know how he's going to continue that development now that that portion right. of his season Good is point. now is now over. Nathaniel Hackett, we talked to him uh, you know, on Sunday about that very thing. He says it's a very tricky proposition now. You've got to continue to prep like a starter. You've got to get into the details of the game plan, how you're going to attack, what are the weak points of the defense, what are the strengths, what are the best play calls, all of that sort of thing. And then you're going to have to kind of flip it around, but try and develop all of your physical skills your mental aptitude of playing the position, running scout team stuff. And uh, Hackett says he's just going to have to translate the running, the opponent's plays into our kind of plays of thinking. And he says it's a balance. Uh, But the most important thing uh, is uh, to be ready to play in case something does happen to Rodgers. The development is just going to have to be, Kind of, kind of pulled back on the reins there because he's just not going to have a chance to run a lot of the Green Bay stuff and certainly will not be running it at full speed the way he has for the last three weeks. Speaking of ready to play, how fortunate are the Packers? And I know you, you create your own fortune, I suppose, but how fortunate are they that not only do they have Elton Jenkins, but that Elton Jenkins has developed into, in my mind... Look, a lot of guys, I shouldn't say a lot of guys, a number of guys can play a number of different positions on the offensive line. But very, very few of them can play them at the level that Elton Jenkins has shown over the short course of his career that he's been able to. How fortunate are the Packers that they have him and that he's developed into what he's developed into? Uh, that is is turning into one of the most fortuitous draft picks uh, in a long, long time for this franchise. I mean, he's a second-year All-Pro at guard who started four positions last year and is now manning the blind side for the league's MVP. He's handling it very well. <laughs> I've seen some. I've seen some stuff around the league already saying this guy might be one of the most valuable offensive linemen in the entire league. Wow! Not just what he's done with his Packers, but this is a guy that if he can man it until Bakhtiari gets back, and it just seamlessly move back to guard or if something happens with a rookie center where he has to go in and snap again uh you know this guy can play at a very high level anywhere across the front and i haven't seen many like him at all i think he is a terrific uh, nfl offensive lineman yeah really good. my my assessment mirrors yours a hundred percent uh a couple of final things with Mark Daniels from WNFL radio joining us here on the game night i i, I guess as we wrap up your opinion, uh, which I do value very much about this team, the last two years, 13-3, and three, now there's a 17th game added, but 13-3 and three the last two years, um, they get to the NFC Championship game before losing. How far, in your estimation, in your opinion, is this Packers team away from making that, that next step? Because it seems as though, with the Aaron Rodgers situation, with the Devontae Adams contract situation, Chips are in the middle of the table for 2021, and if it's not going to happen this year, it's probably not going to happen for a while. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you on that. And it's not like these guys go all in every year because they do. I mean, you go all in. You have to. Uh, but they really are all in. This is a very talented team. 
got an electric offense with great skill. I'm a little nervous about potentially two rookies up front on the offensive line, at least until Bakhtiari returns. But I think they can weather that. Uh, defensively, it's a brand-new system, but I'm, I think there are some playmakers who didn't get a chance to really cut loose and make plays in my Petmas system. This is going to be a more of a freewheeling, disguise and go kind of thing from uh, Joe Barry that I'm interested to see how this develops. Um, and how far are they away? Doug, they were three minutes away yeah. last year. The last minute of the first half, first two minutes of the second half, I'm convinced they were the better team against the Buccaneers up until the Kevin King brain fart, the Aaron Jones fumble. 14 points in a five-point game in three minutes. I think the Packers had them where they wanted them, and they blew it. They let it off the hook. I don't think this team is going to let another team off the hook if they get an NFC Championship game at Lambeau Field. I think this is a talented team that can get there again, and hopefully if it is at home, finish the deal, uh, <laughs> and we'll see what happens. One other note I want to tell you about. Sure. Brian Gutekunst, Ted Thompson, Ron Wolf, undrafted free agents. The Packers now have 10 of them wow. on their roster, and the latest Jack Eflin is the guy from Little town in Northwest Illinois, didn't get any letters to college, walked on in Northern Illinois, said, you know, Mom, I'm going to Iowa and going to play there. Yeah, your mom said you're crazy. Went to Iowa and played there. Said, you know what, I'm going to make it in the NFL. His mom said, ah, you're crazy, Jack. He made it to the NFL. Unbelievable story. But he is in a long line of guys now that have proven that they could do it. Uh, Daphne's interesting. Lancaster, fellow Northwestern, an Illinois guy. Uh, Chris Barnes is your starting play calling inside linebacker. Shannon Sullivan's your nickelback. And they got another one in Chauncey Rivers. These guys, the scouting department for the Packers is, is underrated in my opinion because they find players that no one else finds. And, uh, these two are the latest to make it this year. So, uh, I just think that's another interesting note about how this roster is built. Yeah. And that's how you build a team. It's more than just. You know, a quarterback and a couple of skill position players. Tunyon's going to be an all-pro, man. This yeah, I, yeah. Mean, I agree with you. No, so. I, it, just the way that they've been able to find, like, those street free agents that you mentioned. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's how you get to be 13-3 and three and, and go to back-to-back NFC Championship games. And, yeah, they should have closed it last year. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, we appreciate the time so much. Appreciate the insights very much uh, as well. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Long-time WNFL radio reporter Mark Daniels uh, joining me on the Packers' cutdowns. And uh, look, the practice squad was named on Wednesday. Again, the initial practice squad. There are literally roster tweaks just about every week, sometimes multiple times uh, during the course of any given week as well. So you might see guys like Equinemia St. Brown. Um, signed to the practice squad. Kirk Benkert, God forbid, you know, we're talking about that a few minutes ago. If Kurt Benkert is ever on the field, things have gone catastrophically wrong, but it's always good to have a guy who can play. We saw that in the preseason, a guy who can play, who knows your playbook just in case something does go haywire. Um, You've got uh, other guys like Cole Van Lannan, the feel-good story, I guess you could say, certainly of the draft, a kid from Green Bay, went to Bayport High School, and someone who, of course, desperately wanted to make the Packers' opening day roster but didn't. 
None of the players that the Packers released on cutdown day on Tuesday, none of them were claimed by any other NFL team. So they really had their pick of the 16 that are coming back to the practice squad. Uh, so, again, will we see some of these guys during the football season, during game day Sunday at Lambeau Field or wherever the Packers happen to be playing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm certain that we will. But, uh, again, I just wasn't shocked by any of the cuts that were made, with the exception of J.K. Scott. But that was because they didn't have another punter in camp. Now they do. And J.K. Scott and his uh, erratic right leg, his inconsistent right leg, yeah, it couldn't, it couldn't stick around in Green Bay. Now, the other bit of news from today was that the Packers, and we kind of knew this was coming down the pipe, but the original plan was that the Packers and the Saints, well, the original, original plan was the Packers and the Saints, of course, were going to play at the Superdome uh, in New Orleans on September 12th during the season opener. Now, Hurricane Ida has come through, and while it wasn't necessarily as catastrophic or really on any level as catastrophic as, say, some of the other hurricanes, Hurricane Katrina most famously in New Orleans, but also Hurricane Harvey, which hit another NFL city, Houston, a few years ago. wasn't nearly as catastrophic as any of those, but there are still issues with getting power to the community and you know resources that, look, there's bigger things in life than football games. The football game still needs to be played. It just doesn't need to be played in New Orleans. So the first thought after it looked like New Orleans was out was, well, how about Dallas? Dallas is kind of where the Saints have set up shop temporarily. Uh, They're practicing right now in the Dallas area. And that was the preference, certainly, of Sean Payton because Dallas isn't that far for Saints fans to travel to. Louisiana is right next door. And yes, it's it's inconvenient. It is a half a day's drive or whatever, but it's still something that uh, isn't uh, inconceivable for New Orleans Saints fans that are able to travel uh, that they can get to. So Dallas was ruled out because of a concert. And Jerry Jones even talked about it on a Dallas radio station that, yeah, we're, we're working on a deal with the NFL to bring the Saints-Packers game to our week one available stadium. Well, that didn't work out again because of the concert. And then there were some thoughts of, well, where else could this game be played? And it was suggested that, well, I mean, why don't you just flip it? Why don't you just put the game in Green Bay and give the gate receipt or, you know, however you want to indemnify the New Orleans Saints? You just do it that way. The Saints weren't having any of that. It was not going to be played in Green Bay. It was going to be played somewhere where it's more advantageous for the Saints because it is their home game. And they're not just going to give away a home game. I thought this was really fascinating. Um, This is from the New Orleans Times-Picayune. And uh, sports columnist Jeff Duncan went into why the game is now going to be played in Jacksonville. I'm just going to read Jeff Duncan's column that he wrote because I think it it offers a fascinating insight as to how all of this really went down. And uh, this is how it starts. Moments after the news broke Wednesday that the New Orleans Saints would play their, in quotes, home opener against the Green Bay Packers in Jacksonville, Florida, disappointed Hoodats lit up the social media. Hoodats is like, a, it's like the Saints equivalent of the cheesehead. So the Hoodats lit up social media. What a stupid place to play. Who wants to go there to watch a game? Of all the Florida cities, this is the one we pick? 
Well, actually, yes, Jeff Duncan goes on to write. Jacksonville's relative inaccessibility and unattractiveness as a destination location were the exact reasons the Saints elected to play there. The Saints aren't going to Jacksonville to get married. They're going there to play a football game, a big one, against a worthy opponent, an NFC rival. And winning the game was the number one factor in the scheduling equation for the Saints. We're conscious of everything when it comes to preparing for an opponent, Saints General Manager Mickey Loomis said when asked about the selection process during a conference call with local reporters on Wednesday. There are just so many variables. I don't want to get into all of the variables. The main thing is to have a suitable place to play that both teams have access to. Loomis, as usual, was being cagey. Like everything else the Saints and head coach Sean Payton do, considerable thought and attention to detail went into the decision. After conversations with three sources familiar with the process, here's how it all went down. As you can imagine, there were a lot of moving parts to negotiate. Fox Sports, which had featured the game in its coveted 3.25 p.m. Central Time slot as its America's Game of the Week, asked the league to do what it could to keep the game on Sunday afternoon. Moving the game to Saturday was not an option because Fox already had a marquee Oregon-Ohio State matchup scheduled that afternoon. Secondly, the league now requires all games to be played in NFL stadiums because they're wired for replay communication to the league offices in New York and familiar to their network broadcast partners. The Saints mid broadcast partners. The Saints, meanwhile, did not want a repeat of the Katrina season in 2005 when they were forced to play their home opener against the New York Giants at Giants Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. The air quotes visiting Giants, of course, won the game 27 to 10. That's why, obviously, fresh in their memory, even though it was some 16 years ago, you don't want a repeat of that by giving the Packers the home field advantage. Okay, so Jeff Duncan goes on to write. With the memories of that grim 3-13 and season fresh in their minds, the Saints went to work. The first order of business was finding an available stadium that met the conditions set forth by Fox and the NFL. Fortunately, league officials keep a ready list of stadiums for each week of the NFL season as a contingency plan in case of emergencies. From hurricanes to wildfires to terrorist attacks, the league is adept at relocating games at a moment's notice. From that working list, the first option was AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, because of its proximity to the Saints' temporary setup in Dallas. But it was quickly ruled out because of a conflict with a concert. The Saints then started to consider other options, with an eye toward a southern location. After all, if the Saints were going to have to play home games on the road, they at least wanted it to be somewhere logistically convenient for them in Dallas and their loyal fan base across the Gulf South. Florida quickly became a target. Not only were all three of the league's home stadiums available on opening weekend, but the Sunshine State's legendary heat and humidity would theoretically provide a home field advantage for the Saints, who were accustomed to practicing in triple-digit heat indices at their Metairie training camp. Aaron Rodgers' 3-4 record and pedestrian 78.1 passer rating in the state did not go unnoticed. From there, consideration was given to which location offered the most potential for a home field advantage. The Saints were familiar with Tampa's Raymond James Stadium and owned a 13-7 and all-time record there, but team officials were concerned a game at their NFC South rivals' home field could create too many Bucks-turned-Packers fans, potentially transforming it into a hostile environment. Likewise, Miami was downgraded because of its attractiveness as a destination location. I love this part. Think about it. If you were a Packers fan, where would you rather travel? South Beach? Ybor City? or Jacksonville. 
The Saints even took it a step further. They had a staffer look up Green Bay flights on Expedia and compare the difference in costs and itineraries between Jacksonville, Miami, and Tampa. Predictably, Jacksonville was the most difficult and costly destination for Packers fans. The Cheeseheads might still migrate south for the game, but the Saints certainly didn't want to make things easier for Packers Nation to make the trip. So as you can see, there was a method to the Saints' madness. No kidding. They did what they could do to make the best of a difficult situation. Who knows? All of this effort and analysis might go for naught. The league's reigning MVP might strafe the Saints' thin secondary and turn TIAA Bankfield into Lambeau South, but it won't be because the Saints didn't consider every detail and try to give themselves the best possible start to 2021 on a winning note. I love that there is so much minutia that went into this. That from, again, Jeff Duncan from the New Orleans Times-Picayune. My favorite part is that they had a staffer look up Green Bay to Miami, Green Bay to Tampa, Green Bay to Jacksonville, and they picked the worst possible spot. I've been to Jacksonville. I've been to this stadium. I covered the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 39 between the uh, Eagles and the Patriots. Uh, New England won that game. That was when Terrell Owens was basically playing on one leg. Had an amazing game. Uh, that was Donovan McNabb puking in the, the huddle. You might remember that uh, game. Jacksonville's a nice city. I, don't, I mean, if, if Packers fans want to travel to Jacksonville, it's, it's fine. It doesn't offer the same amenities. It doesn't offer the same nightlife, certainly, as Miami. There's, I mean, there's no question about that. Jacksonville is a city. Jacksonville is it's a town. It's, honestly, it's not unlike, say, if Milwaukee or Green Bay were a southern city. It's just a small town, and it often gets overshadowed in that state. It gets overshadowed by Orlando, a city that doesn't even have an NFL team. It's got an NFL game. It gets the Pro Bowl every year. But that's, you know, that that's it. Tampa, um, you know, Tampa Bay fans are certainly feeling the juices of winning the Super Bowl a year ago. And I, I understand why the Saints wouldn't want to go there because, yeah, it would that that would turn – Buccaneers fans into Packers fans for the day. There's no there's no question about that. And there are still some Buccaneers fans because their team's on the road. Buccaneers fans may still travel to Jacksonville, just travel, you know, northeast uh, to Jacksonville to root on the Packers or to, I guess, more, more accurately, root against uh, the New Orleans Saints. Because, look, I mean, I, I don't know how good New Orleans is going to be this year. Drew Brees obviously is retired. Uh, as Jeff Duncan mentioned, the secondary is a little bit thin. You've got Jameis Winston now as your quarterback. I guess there's some familiarity there from Jameis Winston. I mean, he certainly has played in the stadium before. But, um, yeah, I, here's the other thing, though, about Packers fans that we've all come to learn, that we've all come to know, and that's Packers fans will travel, and Packers fans will travel at a moment's notice, and Packers fans don't necessarily need the great, shiny destination. You don't necessarily need to go see the Packers play the Rams in Los Angeles because it's Hollywood. You don't necessarily need to go see the Packers play now the Las Vegas Raiders in Las Vegas because it's Las Vegas. Will it be fun for Packers fans? Absolutely. Will Packers fans take over the stadium because it's now in Las Vegas? More likely to do that than they were certainly in Oakland. It's a better destination than Oakland, and I think even people from Oakland would say that. But Packers fans travel. They just do. And Packers fans will probably travel. I think more Packers fans will travel to Jacksonville than Saints fans will. It's not a knock on Saints fans. 
But there are just certain teams that have that cachet, and the Green Bay Packers are certainly one of those teams. So, all right, coming up on Friday, we're going to have a Badgers preview. The Wisconsin Badgers opening up their season on Saturday at home at Camp Randall Stadium against Penn State. Really looking forward uh, to talking some Badgers football. I think they're going to have a good season. Then again, every time I say I think they're going to have a good season, they don't. That's what I said last year. And when I have no expectations for them, that's when they play their best. It's one of the oddest phenomenons in Wisconsin sports. Also, we're going to talk some more Brewers baseball coming up on our next show as well. This is a team that, as I record this right now, now as I also record this, the Reds are leading in Game 2 of their uh, doubleheader against the New York Mets. But the Brewers' magic number heading into play tonight is 19 against the San Francisco Giants. You may be listening to this after Game 3. That's probably likely. So I obviously I can't look into the crystal ball and see what they did uh, at Oracle Park. But I do like their chances and, and I've said this both on this podcast and, and on the radio as well, and I certainly mean it. And I say it without any hyperbole. I say it because the Brewers pitching, top to bottom, is the best in baseball. Their top three starters are the best in baseball. Their top, you know, their entire rotation, one through five, I think, is the best in baseball. And Christian Yelich is starting to hit. And you're getting guys back in the lineup. You're getting Eduardo Escobar back in the lineup. You're getting Willie Adamas back in the lineup. And they didn't have serious injuries. It's kind of, you know, a twing here, a ping there. Freddie Peralta returning to the rotation. I like the way that this team is constructed. I like the in, I love the in-season moves that David Stearns and Matt Arnold made. And Baseball America, I don't know if you saw this today or not, but Baseball America... Uh, they did a poll, and Baseball America is the really the preeminent insider magazine that's printed weekly, covers a lot of college and minor league baseball as well, a little bit of the majors, but it's really focused on, I mean, if you, I, I don't know if that's where inside baseball, I don't know if that's where that terminology, that phraseology came from, I, I have no idea. But it is the most inside baseball, the inside baseball magazine there is, and they conducted a poll of players, team executives, and other managers and they said what I've been saying for at least a few years now, and that's Craig Council is the best manager in the game. Craig Council, and look, every manager is going to get flack for making a pitching decision that blows up in their face. That's, that's part of the game. That's as much a part of the game as catchers taking foul balls in the cup and Kristen Yelich hitting a home run that you know, travels 450 feet and it just looks majestic when he's, you know, swinging the bat as well as he can swing the bat. I mean, it's just part of the game. You can't escape it. But Craig Council, and when he was hired as the Brewers manager, I don't know if you, how many of you were with me when I, you know, made my, it, it was the, the lamest, it's, I don't like make, making predictions. But I didn't know how good of a manager he was going to be. He had never managed or coached at any level. He was never an assistant. He was never like a batting coach. He was never a first base coach, third base coach, bench coach, anything. He was in the front office when he after he retired, spent a couple of years in the Brewers' front office, and then they made him the manager. Obviously a very smart player. Got so much out of what skills he had to stick around in baseball for 17 years. One, two rings along the way. You can't discount any of that. But I didn't know how good of a manager he was going to be. Nobody knows until they actually do it. And what we learned very quickly about Craig Council is that he's an elite manager. He's not a good manager. 
He's more than a great manager. I would put him in the elite category. The Brewers are fortunate to have him. And to, to me, he is the best manager in Brewers history. He's the only one that's led them to three straight playoff appearances, and it's about to be four. And I know that Harvey Keene led this team to the World Series in 1982, turned that season around, and should be lauded for that forever. And that's the only thing, the only thing that Harvey has over Craig. But Craig came within a game of it. Craig came within a game of the World Series in 2018. And anything can happen in October. This is not a guarantee. I don't do guarantees anymore, and I hate making predictions. But the way that this team is constructed right now, if Christian Yelich can swing the bat in September the way that he did in, in August, if the pitchers stay healthy, if everybody stays healthy, the Brewers have as good a chance as any team in baseball, including the Giants, who we've seen the last couple of nights, including the Dodgers and their $290 million payroll, and they're nipping at the Giants' heels right now in the National League West, including the Yankees, who just ripped off double-digit consecutive wins over in the American League in, in, in a potential World Series. The Brewers can beat any of those teams in the World Series. The Brewers could make it a double play. The Brewers could do what the Bucks just did. And I say that, again, without irony, without hyperbole, and I don't know that I've ever said that before. Maybe in 2018. It's, it's possible I might have said that. But this team can do it. This team is that good. And I think the next six or seven weeks are going to be, well, maybe t- up to two months, I guess, if this thing is still going on November 1st. That's going to be a hell of a two months in the city of Milwaukee and in southeastern Wisconsin and for baseball fans in the state of Wisconsin everywhere. All right, that'll do it for this edition of the Doug Russell Show. Hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll be back on Friday again with a Badgers preview. Wisconsin kicking things off on Saturday against Penn State. Until then, we'll talk to you next time, not only here on uh, the Doug Russell Podcast, but also don't forget to catch my new show, The Game Night, weeknights at 6 o'clock on 97.3 The Game or Worldwide on the iHeartRadio app. That'll do it for me. We'll talk to you next time right here on the Doug Russell Podcast.